0: If you've got your Bible and you've opened it up to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, we will go ahead and get into the word this morning. Heard a story this week about two cowboys who were riding the range. They came upon an Indian lying on his stomach with his ear to the ground. And one of the cowboys stopped and said to the other, look. He's listening to the ground. He can hear things miles away in any direction. Just then, the Indian looks up and says, covered wagon, about two miles away. Have two horses, one brown, one white. Man, woman, two children in wagon. The cowboy says, that's incredible. It's really amazing, said the second cowboy. Then the Indian looks up and says, run over me about half hour ago. True story. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes letters to seven different churches. And he says to them, as in our letter today in verse 17, he who has an ear, put it to the ground. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And with these letters to these seven Asian churches, there's wonderful application for us today in hearing them. It's been said that the main idea to the letter to the church in Pergamos, which is where verse 12 picks up, is that though believers and churches are constantly tempted to compromise, both theologically and ethically, true followers of Christ will remain faithful and receive from the Lord the reward of eternal life. The church in Pergamos is known to be the compromising church. It's interesting that each of these churches, some have said that they're a bit of a panoramic snapshot of church history. Uh, The last two weeks we've studied the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus means darling. And some have said, man, this is just an interesting snapshot, possibly, of uh, the early church in its darling stage. Uh, The early church in its darling stage, the first century church. And then you would move on to the letter to the church at Smyrna, and it's the church that's known to be the martyred church, the martyred church, those who die for the testimony of Jesus. And just some interestingly, and it's not a dogmatic thing, it's just kind of an interesting tidbit if you choose to look at it and hold it loosely, but some have said that kind of represents the second and third century church in history of the... Church that was persecuted so severely before it moved on to be the compromising church under the Roman Emperor Constantine, where Christianity was adopted as the Roman religion, the Pax Romana, uh, the Roman peace, I believe, is what it was called, where uh, no longer were Christians persecuted, but it was encouraged that they would become Christians. And Christianity became the religion of Rome. Uh, so some would say again, and, and I found it fascinating, but I've grown to just loosely hold it, that, that the church in Pergamos represents the 4th century, century church in history uh, under Constantine, a church of mixture, or as the word Pergamos means, a thoroughly objectionable marriage. It's actually what Pergamos means. And Pergamos, or in the church in Pergamum, uh, is known to be the compromising church through this letter from Jesus. Compromise can be a poison that eats the church from the inside out. There's a reason that Jesus addresses the issue of compromise. A man named David Levy wrote, Compromise has been a cancer in the church from its inception. One man uh, named Adrian Rogers, who was a Baptist minister with close ties to Calvary Chapel, said it well. It's better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It's better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. Kind of the thing behind compromise within a church when it comes to compromising and letting false doctrine and immorality come into the church is that we don't want to be those who confront error. We don't want to be those who confront immorality, a lack of morality. It seems unloving and it seems hateful. Rather, it seems like the more comfortable road To just embrace everything and everybody, even if it's not true, even if it's a lie, even if it would lead people uh, to hell and to death and to destruction. But it's better, as Rogers says, to be divided by truth than to be united in error. This letter that Jesus writes to the church in Pergamos brings up the very relevant hot button topic that we all know in our day and age, the topic of tolerance, the topic of tolerance. There are those churches that are tolerant of sin within the church, they're tolerant of false teachings within the church, and they're very, very spiritually weak for it. And yet, in their spiritual weakness, they're applauded by society. Society loves that compromising church. Then there are those churches that are intolerant of false doctrine. And they're accused of being judgmental and hateful and narrow-minded. It's interesting to have just taught the last two weeks of Ephesus, that first church, the first letter, and how one of the things that Jesus applauds that church for is that they did not tolerate evil. They did not tolerate evil. And that church in Ephesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, Jesus says. He says, which deeds I also hate. Jesus wasn't afraid to be a hater to wicked deeds. Jesus wasn't afraid to be intolerant in a day of tolerance. And if you're wondering how, what happened to the church in Smyrna, Rory, when are you going to teach on the church in Smyrna? I just felt like this morning the message for Pergamos was the word the Lord had for us. Uh, here in the park service and the audience that attends and a word for us in the midst of our public sphere of influence as we're able to preach the gospel. I think Smyrna is going to be a wonderful teaching as we look at the persecuted church throughout history and even the church today that's persecuted. But I believe that there's a word for us today as we're, you know, here we are, it's pretty relevant. We're in the midst of our city center. We're in our public park. You know, we're, we're really exercising some freedom of speech that we have to preach the gospel and to speak truth that many societies don't have that freedom. And we're able to just open up the scripture and we're able to speak that, you know, tolerance isn't all that it's cracked up to be. You know, coexisting at the expense of abandoning historical Christian doctrine and values and morality, that only ends in death. You know, I, I think it was my friend Sandy Adams, who pastors in Georgia, who said, compromise is like paying the cannibals to eat you last. You know, it's just there's no real winning in it. You know. And certainly that's the case when it comes to truth and morality from a biblical standpoint. A very typical perspective of God in our culture is that he's all loving as well as tolerant and understanding and therefore the church should be the same. Very tolerant. It's been said that any dead fish can go with the flow. I didn't know that was going to be such a hit. I stole it from someone else this morning. I hate to say it. (laughs) But it takes a fish alive and strong to go against the current, to navigate the fish ladders, to hop upstream. You know, the world would say to us, as they said to Athanasius in his day, Christians, the world is against you. That's where we get to reply, as he did, then I am against the whole world. Biblical Christianity is a Christianity that does not compromise. And Jesus will have a word today to the church in Pergamos who has been faltering, who's not been towing the line, who's been going with the flow. And let's begin to read that letter, will you with me? In verse 12, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. As we referenced uh, two weeks ago, each letter has been written to an angel. And that could be an angel. That could be a guardian angel. It's also translated messenger. So to whoever, whoever would be speaking the message to that local church. Uh, one dictionary translates it pastor. Perhaps that's, you know, no one really knows. You could do all sorts of talking back and forth. But really, there's there's a message to be communicated. And there's a messenger to give that. Jesus gives that uh, letter to the messenger in Pergamos. Again, Pergamos is two Greek words that means unacceptable or objectionable marriage. It's what the the name of the city was named of. And if you look at it from a church history standpoint, it really opened up a phase of church history that was one of objectionable marriage, where the church was worldly and full of compromise. And when you look at the city of Pergamos, really, it's, it's no wonder why. It was a tough city to be a Christian in. Listen to some of these points about the city of Pergamum. And you may uh, look up these. You can even, you know, smart da- smartphone day and age, you can do an image search for Pergamum and see this city uh, with photos from today. But Pergamum was the official capital of of the Roman province of Asia Minor. So it was sort of the Salem, Oregon of its day, or maybe the Washington, D.C. of the day. It was very educated. It had a library of 200,000 volumes, second only to Alexandria's library in Egypt. Pliny called, the Roman historian Pliny called Pergamon, by far the most distinguished city of Asia Minor. They had all sorts of pagan temples throughout the city. Temples dedicated to Dionysius, Athena, Asepius, the god of healing, symbolized by a serpent entwined around a staff, and Demeter, or Demeter, I'm not sure if I'm saying some of these correctly. They had a great altar to Zeus, Which is known to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a city steeped in pagan religion. It was a city tight with the Roman Empire. It was the official city for the worship of uh, the emperor. And thus the worship of the state. The worship of the empire of Rome. It eventually boasted three giant temples dedicated to the emperor. And in 29 BC, it was the first city in Asia to receive permission to build a temple dedicated to worshiping the living Caesar of the time. So really it was just steeped in paganism, steeped in emperor worship, steeped in the worship of the state or of the empire. And Jesus speaks to this city. It's important to know context, isn't it? It's important to know why would Jesus write what he writes to this city and to this church. And this will help us understand why he writes what he writes and why it's not that confusing to know why he writes about Satan's throne and such. Well, he says these are the things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, each letter that Jesus is going to write, each of the seven letters, has one of the descriptions from Revelation chapter 1 about Jesus. you remember John the Revelator sees a revelation of Jesus, and we want to keep that the first thing in our Revelation study is always looking to see Jesus in the book. And here he reminds us that I'm the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. In chapter 1 and later on in this letter, we'll see that it is a sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. That seems odd. That seems graphic. That seems like something you don't want to show your children before they go to bed at night. But it's not really that odd. It's actually references from Isaiah, references from Hebrews. In Isaiah, it says, He shall, this is in 11.4, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips, He shall slay the wicked. And so just the, the speech and the words of God, the same words that said, Let there be light, and that brought something out of nothing, are the same words That will correct the world. The breath of his lips will slay the wicked. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God. It's not a dead archaic bunch of pages bound together. But it is living and it is powerful And though it looks a bit blunt with this leatherback binding, it's actually sharper than any double-edged sword. And what is this book of these words of God able to do? It says that it pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow. It's the surgeon's scalpel. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews goes on to say, And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this. When you crack open this this book, I, I read a, I, We went rafting this week. Some of the men from the church and I sang a song to the men and just just a little uh, karaoke time on the on the banks of the Grand Ronde River. But I sang a song that Malcolm and Alwyn wrote, a couple Calvary Chapel pastors in the 70s, and they wrote this Beatles-sounding song that says, "Got myself some wisdom from a leatherback book. Got myself a savior." When I took a second look. And man, when you open up this leatherback book, the words come off the page and pierce your heart. And all of a sudden, you know someone knows everything you've ever done. It's just just words. Some ancient poetry. Some ancient history. But it's alive. And it's powerful. And it does a work. And I pray that it would do a work in your heart today as we read it. The sword of Christ conveys absolute authority, decisive discernment. Aiken writes, Rome had given Pergamum the rare power to exercise capital punishment on its own. And the symbol of its authority was the sword. But Jesus is going to say later on in our letter today that if you don't turn away and repent of your compromising behavior... I am going to come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so really the sword to be afraid of is the sword of the word of God rather than the sword that any man can wield. Well, let's move along in verse 13. He says, so keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus after he lived on the earth. After he lived a perfect life, after he died the death on the Roman cross for the sins of the world, after he was buried for three days, after he rose from the dead and lived on the earth for 40 more days, showing himself alive by many infallible proofs, this is written after he ascended into heaven, the gates of heaven opened up in a beautiful homecoming, the Psalms tell us, And Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father in a place of authority. And now he's speaking again in a revelation to John where he says, I know your works. You think he doesn't know your works? We think he doesn't know the works of Calvary Prineville. We think he is some, you know, deist type God that, that is just out there but is disconnected from the affairs of man. No, he knows, says earlier, he walks among the churches and notice something that he knows. He knows where you dwell. So he knew of all the paganism that the Pergamum church was just surrounded with. They were living in a Las Vegas of their day. They were living in a sin city of their day. And and the Lord knew all of the cultural nuances that they had to deal with. And, you know, the Lord knows Prineville. The Lord knows Calvary's works. The Lord knows where you live. He knows what you're exposed to. You know, He knows the news he knows that there is incredible pressure. Johnny spoke so well, just a word for us last week. There's incredible pressure and we're kind of, we're just kind of in a tide right now. But I think all of us just sense there's a great wave coming upon the churches to be tolerant of sexual immorality and homosexual relationships and marriage and just, why can't you just bend on this one? And Why can't you just be tolerant and coexist and While there's so much to be said about being loving and yes, you know, man, we have the freedom to live how we desire. Is there freedom for them, you know, apart from it being something sanctioned by the church, perhaps. But for us to say, you know what, God's cool with it. We're cool with it. Let's just go arm in arm and just say, it's all okay that would be a compromise within the church that, that i think would be unbiblical and would be sinful the lord knows that we are faced in this culture he knows the transgender issue the lord knows the you know lgbt i think i'm forgetting one too he knows like not surprised. You're not surprised that he took the rainbow that was there at the ark with Noah, you know, and, and it's been turned into something else. It's not surprising to him. He knows what's happening in the United States. He's not surprised that, you know, in our culture, it's the culture to just go ahead and, you know, sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage and. Have relationships with them in in an immoral way. He's not surprised that 90% of people that come to my desk at the church and ask me to marry them are already living together, already have multiple children together. He's not surprised that there's a 50% divorce rate among families in the United States and a 50% divorce rate even within church marriages. He knows that sexual immorality is just rampant. That a person can access pornography from a thousand different ways within their home. From their own pocket. He's like, I know where you live. But that's not an excuse to compromise. It's not an excuse to quit fighting against sin. Fighting against immorality. Speaking truth. In love towards those that are in opposition towards you, he's not surprised of the political climate of our world. That we've got we got two parties in our nation that hate each other. You know, some sort of civil war seems imminent, but neither one are right. Neither one of them are the kingdom of God. He's not surprised that there's just absolute. Immorality on one side and absolute immorality on the other side. Which one's he talking about? Both. Absolute hypocrisy, absolute paganism, absolute religiosity, false religion, false gospel, not the kingdom of heaven here in the United States, nor is it intended to be by Jesus. It's important to know for, for application today that he knows where you live. He knows Primeville. Jesus is a bit of a country boy at heart, right? He knows Primeville. As well as the works associated with it. In this case, he says, it's where Satan's throne is. Boy, that's that's a pretty interesting um, claim by Jesus who knows Satan. Seen him, lived with him for a while, you know. He was tempted by him, hung out in the desert with him. He knows Satan, and he knows where Satan's throne is. And where is it? It was there in Pergamos, or Pergamum. If you go to, if you went, or even still, the ruins are there. There in Pergamos, the Acropolis was situated on a high plateau. And from a distance, this temple looked like a throne or some sort of palace. It was in the Acropolis that idols and altars and shrines and temples, they were all there within the Acropolis. Some believe that's what Jesus might have been speaking of when he spoke of Satan's throne. There was the altar to Zeus Sotar. Sotar means savior. There was an altar to Zeus Savior. In Pergamos on top of the mountain it was a magnificent structure dominating the 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 city and the legs of Zeus were entwined with serpents tails it was an epitome of idolatry and paganism the cult of Asclepius was in Pergamos and the symbol of Asclepius was a serpent aligned with Satan. They also, following Asclepios, called him the savior. And we actually get the word scalpel from Asclepios. It was there that this uh, he was supposedly a sort of a god of healing who used a lot of snakes to heal people. So uh, those of you that have whatever phobia it is, uh, this, this is your place for sure. And in this temple, kind of an Indiana of Jones snake scene would occur where individuals would go in and stay all night laying on the floor with the snakes. And if they had the snakes touch them, supposedly the breath of the snakes and the kiss of the snakes, and these were non-poisonous, but the slither of the snakes would heal your asthma or or whatnot, you know. Um, And I would rather die. That's all i got to say. It's no coincidence that Satan himself is symbolized in scripture as a serpent and that Jesus said that Satan's throne was in Pergamos. It's also where the imperial cult was centered, as I said earlier, where the worship of the state embodied by the emperor, whatever living emperor was alive, there a person was Uh, prodded and implored to come and put a pinch of incense on the altar to the current Caesar and there they would have just a moment of worship and they could go about the rest of their life as long as they had at one point or another worship that Caesar and worship the empire. Satan's throne exists. There's an old hymn that says there's another throne Under which my saints have dwelt secure. And sufficient is my arm alone. And your defense is sure. And just like every letter, Jesus will start out with a bit of an applaud and an encouragement and some commendation. As here he says to the church in Pergamon, And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. What a wonderful thing to think of churches throughout the world who hold fast the name of Jesus. They're not denying Christ. The word hold fast means to seize or to arrest. And that's what they did. The name of Jesus. We love Jesus. We love his name. We love his name even in the days, Jesus says, when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So there's this wonderful reference. We don't know much at all about Antipas, except that he was on the mind of the resurrected risen glorified Savior. Wow. Antipas. He was commended by that lord jesus he was applauded and called a faithful martyr someone who did not deny and notice jesus makes it personal my faith and just like the previous church smyrna could be described as the martyrs church they weren't the only ones dying for jesus's testimony even in pergamum people were dying for jesus and here, you know, one could imagine. Uh, Tertullius wrote that Antipas was the dentist of the city or a dentist in the city. And you could just imagine in the center of emperor worship where everyone was summoned to put a pinch of incense on the altar of worship to the Caesar that he taken from his home, separated from his family brought in, in most historical accounts of these moments, just said, hey, if you just go ahead and just just a little worship, just just throw the dog a bone, you know, just a little bit of incense, you know, close your eyes and do it, you know, or cross your fingers in your pocket while you do it, whatever, just just do it, would you? If you'll just do it, you'll live, you can go back to your family. And like many martyrs of these days, they refused to give one moment of worship to say, Caesar is Lord when they knew Jesus is Lord. And the tradition says that Antipas was placed in a bronze bowl and cast into coals of a fire where he was fried and burned to death. And that is how he met his end. But in the words of Jesus, Do not fear those who have the ability to destroy your body for a moment. Let your fear, that healthy reverence, be for the one who has the ability to destroy both your body and your soul for all eternity. Maybe those words were on on Antipas' mind as they placed him in that bowl and placed him upon those coals. Jesus calls him my faithful witness. It's interesting because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we read that Jesus is called the faithful witness. And how interesting that the faithful witness makes faithful witnesses. That's what Jesus does to his followers. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses locally in your city, regionally in your county, and to the uttermost parts of the world. It's interesting that the word witness in the Greek is the word martis. And it wasn't until New Testament Christians where the word martis or witness was used to describe those who would lay their life down for the testimony of Jesus. Antipas was my faithful martyr, my faithful witness. He was killed among you. Where was he killed? There where Satan's throne is. Verse 14, just like with Ephesus, we move from commendation to condemnation. Some of you don't know the difference. I don't really either, but we'll just read it. Okay. It says, but I have a few things against you, because you have there, there in the church of Pergamos, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit Sexual immorality. So there within the church, there are those who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Now, if you would read in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and I think 26, you read of the story of Balaam and King Balak. Okay? It was there as the children of Israel were coming up out of Egypt, coming to the promised land. They just had an incredible victory over the Amalekites. And King Balak, I'm blanking on the the name of the nation that uh, Balak was the king of. But he could look from a high point and see the, the children of Israel coming up towards his land like locusts, like sand of the sea. And as they're traveling and as they're coming, he thinks they're going to conquer him in the same way as he conquered the Amalekites. So he hires a seer or a prophet named Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. As you read the story, you can read it on your own to get the full you know, breadth of it. But every time Balaam tried to come and curse the children of Israel and speak forth oracles... He could only bless them. He'd get there to curse them and he could only bless them. But he wanted the money from King Balak so bad that he just kept trying. And the Lord said, no, there's a whole story with a donkey and a talking donkey and you guys probably remember it. The Lord said, you'll only speak what came, what come, what I tell you to speak. And every time he'd speak, it could only be blessings. And King Balak was really frustrated with that and said, I got all this cash. Are you sure you don't want it? And Balaam said, all right, all right. I can't curse them, but let me tell you what you should do. Have your beautiful women bring down into their camp and come in in the evening. And we all know the the way to a man's heart is food and another hot dish, okay? Okay, anyways. That's old school legal. I don't know if it's politically correct, but, you know, I don't normally talk like that. Right, Lindsay? Lindsay? Where are you? Okay. But, let's say a prayer real quick for whatever's going on in our community here with all these sirens going around. Lord, we think of whoever is hurting or in pain right now, and causing the emergency services to just be uh, active and going to help hurting or wounded or scared right now. And we just pray for your peace that passes understanding and that you would use this as an opportunity to bring the gospel into these lives that are um, afraid and in trauma right now, Lord. And so the message, the doctrine of Balaam was one of Mixture, an objectionable marriage where the women would go and they would sleep with the men and feed the men the food that had been sacrificed to idols. And it's interesting, the scriptures tell us in King Solomon's life is a great example of this, that if you were to marry a non-believer, and have relations with the non-believer, they will turn your heart to worship other gods. And so if Balaam said, you want to destroy this nation? Turn their hearts away from their God. He's the one who's giving them the power. And so Balaam heeded that. And such a perverse and twisted, immoral day happened that even in front of the tabernacle of meeting, while Moses and Aaron were discussing A man took a woman, and he's named by name in the book of Numbers, he took a woman into his tent. And one of the zealous men of the children of Israel was so disgusted by this that he took a spear, just there in front of the tent of meeting, and he went into the tent where the immorality was happening, and he thrust both of them through with the spear. And the story tells us that in one day, 24,000 people died. Because they worshipped at the altar of sexual immorality and food that was immoral that had been offered to idols. So the doctrine of Balaam was one of mixture. It was one of compromise. It's a doctrine that says, hey, let's just go along with it to get along with it. Let's do what the world would applaud. Let's be open-minded or progressive or tolerant. Let's compromise. And while that might please the world, Christ is not pleased. Jesus says here that the doctrine of Balaam is a stumbling block. And in the Greek, it's the word scandalon. Scandalon. It's a trap. It's a cause for stumbling. It's a stick for bait. It's a snare. And man, if you follow the right news, some of these wonderful Christian journalists, you can read of many churches within our culture today who are compromising. Many churches in our culture today who are, you know, replacing the pronouns for God, calling him a she. Many churches today just embracing all kinds of immorality, even within their own leadership, within their own clergy. Many churches today that are very on par with the church in Pergamos, and I am not so haughty to say that we are above that. It's so good to be in the book of Revelation in this series through the churches so that we can humble ourselves and hear from Jesus and say, Lord, is there any mixture happening? Are we compromising on anything theologically, doctrinally, what may be known about God that He's revealed to us from the Word? And you know what? With deep... <laughs> Their studies, we can come to know that the Bible is inerrant, it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's absolutely pure and something that we can take to the bank. It's something that we can stand alone on. And even recently, I've done many studies and a lot of studying on the critics of and how they try to toss the Bible out. And so many people just get so caught up on, well, there's been translations and translations and translations and copies of copies. And and you know what? To be fair, there are mountains of copies. There are thousands of variants. But the wonderful thing is, is that There are thousands of variants within thousands and thousands and thousands of copies, which percentage-wise makes any sort of discrepancy very small. And something wonderful that we have about the Word of God or the sword of Jesus' mouth is that we have manuscripts that are so wonderfully researched that the manuscripts have been found to say there's nothing you need to worry about in our Bible. It is true, not false. And studies have showed us that if you take the best historical secular document and look for the manuscripts, the best one has a stack of manuscripts about as tall as my pulpit that they can look at and try to figure out what historically was going on But studies have shown that the scriptural manuscripts, even of the New Testament, are five and a half times the Empire State Building tall. And the types of variants that you have within those manuscripts are simply different ways to communicate the same truth to somebody. There are no variants that would tell us Anything different than pure Christian doctrine and pure Christian lifestyle. And one of the scholars from Dallas Theological Seminary tells us that there are many ways to say something like Mary loves John. In fact, there's like 350 different ways to say Mary loves John and never mess up the message of the sentence that Mary loves John. In the language of the New Testament, it's the same thing. And so when Jesus speaks with the men on the road to Emmaus, and they're all confused, and they don't know what's going on, and we thought he was the Savior, but he died, he didn't just speak a kind, nice thought to them. He opened up the book that he found to be authoritative, And beginning at Moses, he spoke through the prophets the things concerning himself. He wasn't worried about, oh, you know, what about this translation? Or what if it's in this language? No, he was able to say, hey, from Genesis through Malachi, and now we know from Matthew through Revelation, this is the word of God. The same thing is spoken of in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus speaks from the authoritative point of the Word of God. Abraham, can't you just go and tell my family what hell is like so that they don't come here? And Abraham says, they have the Scripture, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them read those to know how to not get to hell. Oh, they can't read the scriptures and the prophets. There's too many variations, too many translations. It's so confusing. Can't you just go? Surely they'll believe if someone rose from the dead. And Abraham says through the lips of Jesus, even if someone were to do some sort of wacky, crazy miracle, they wouldn't believe. The Word of God. The Word of God is what we can stand upon to keep stable in the shifting sand culture that we live in. Will it be easy? It won't be easy. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, the boldness and the courage of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Holy Spirit to with broken hearts over the sins of the world that we might be ambassadors and say, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sin. Turn from your immorality. Turn from your false teaching and believe in Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus goes on to say, thus you have You also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. How dare you, Jesus? That is not tolerant. Jesus hates the deeds and the things of the false teachers. As Johnny mentioned last week, we follow our Lord. We can use the lingo of our Lord. I hate the deeds. And he says the deeds. He says the things. But he loves those people. He desires that they would repent and be saved out of the bondage of sin. The Nicolaitans, two words there, Nico and laity or Nike, which means victory over the people, the laity. And the Nicolaitans, not much is known about them except from their name. They came from Nicholas, a deacon from Acts chapter 6, who went awry and apparently wanted to rule over the people. And in two ways, the Nicolaitans would rule over the people. In leading them to sexual immorality and immorality, and and, and also a, a sort of antinomianism, which means no rules, okay? This was the way he was leading people, and it's really the way that our culture wants us to go this day. It's been said that compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons. Daniel Akin says this is for at least four reasons, and as we get ready to wrap up, it says four reasons, but I wrote five down, so I don't know, I might have added something, or missed button something, I don't know. Four or five, you can blend them together. Listen to this. What wisdom for us today. Compromise never occurs quickly. So you hardly notice the change. It's the classic experiment, which I've never done, of the frog in the boiling water, right? Put the frog in cold water. If it's turned up slowly to the point of boiling, he won't even really notice it and he'll boil alive. Toss a frog in boiling hot water he'll Hop out and run away as fast as he can. Compromise is like that slow work of the culture seeping within the church. Compromise number two always lowers the original standards you once held important. It is seldom offensive because it's perceived as loving. One of the greatest points in the LGBTQ debate today is that it's either you love us and accept us and affirm our lifestyle choices, or you're hateful. That's, that's it. You're just hateful. And compromise is seldom offensive because you're just going with the flow. You're in agreement with everybody. You're not confronting culture. You're not... But the gospel confronts, the gospel confronts, Compromise. this is the fourth in my notes, eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. Is there anything in your life right now that you just remember just, oh, I never, you know, you just kind of, I would never, or never, and now you're like, eh, it's cool, you know. That's what compromise does. And fifth, it's been well said that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept. And what that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. will celebrate. And of course, we just came off of a month of celebration. Celebrate pride. Celebrate diversity. Celebration. You can see over the last 40, 50 years how that, you know, we began to tolerate it, we began to accept it, uh, we began to live it, and now we celebrate it and flaunt it. And the scriptures tell us, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those. Let's keep moving. I think I said we were almost done, and I want to be true to that. So let's have the worship team come on up. That is a great way to get the ball rolling. Johnny? Verse 17, he who has an ear. You guys got your ears on this morning? you able to hear? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's be hearing. Let's be listening to the Lord. We all who have been parents, we know when you tell your children something and you tell them again and they're not listening. They're halfway listening. Go, hey, could you go do this in the house and go make sure this is taken care of and grab me this and they go and they you know they're playing the piano, a little song they just learned, you know. This is this hypothetically this doesn't happen in our house, you know. <laughs> You know, then they're, you know, getting a drink of, you know, soda, you know, and then they're, you know, playing with the dogs. And then they bring just something that's completely not what you asked for. And and you just kind of got to do that. Hey, listen. He who has an ear, let him listen. Guys, it is such a stretch to twist these words of Jesus. And just ignore what he said here. When he's telling us, hey, oh, like, pay attention. These are important words. To him who overcomes, and just with every letter, there's a wonderful promise. To those who are the victors, I'm going to give some of the hidden manna to eat. Knowing a little bit of scripture, you know that Manna was with the, uh, an angelic food that God fed the children of Israel with as they came through the wilderness. And uh, Moses was to take one bit of that manna and put it in a jar and kind of hide it away in the Ark of the Covenant. It's it said that Jeremiah then took that jar during the uh, Babylonian captivity and kept it. And, uh, and buried it in Mount Nebo. You know, it was just tradition. But we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the manna sent from heaven. He's that fulfillment of that picture. He says, I'm the bread that satisfies. I'm the bread of life. And if you overcome, if you have victory when When you live in a world of nothing but compromise, I will feed you. I will feed you. I will satisfy you with me. You'll have me. That's the best heaven ever, guys. Heaven without Jesus is no heaven. You'll have him. And then you'll be given a stone. A new name written on it which no one knows except him who receives it. You know, we live in a day where people are painting rocks and putting them all over the parks and you got to go find those stones, those rocks. You gotta love doing that, right? It's a little obsessive. You might tone it down a couple notches, but it's good. It's a good hobby. I'm just kidding. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a stone with a name written on it. A white stone. Couple of little things here. Back in the ancient world, you would be given if you were under trial, you would be given a black stone at the court hearing if you were found guilty, and a white stone if you were found innocent. So perhaps it's speaking of the innocence that you have from Jesus. A white stone was also a party invitation. That you would bring with you to a party. I don't know, maybe you could paint your own stone and show up uninvited. I would probably do that. But it's this name that's interesting. It's a name that no one knows except you and Jesus. And there's a few times in Revelation that we see these sort of names given. I'm going to close out reading from a preacher named Beal. Beal. Who wrote, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, to know someone's name, especially that of God, often meant to enter into an intimate relationship with that person and to share in the person's character or power. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, believers reception of this name represents their final reward of consummate identification and unity with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom and under his sovereign authority. The new name is a mark of genuine membership into the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. It stands in contrast to the satanic name that unbelievers receive, which identifies them with the character of the devil and with the ungodly city of man. And so as you set your things aside this morning, just move towards prayer.